invite you to go ahead and open up your Bibles with me to the Gospel according to Luke. We're looking at Luke 18 through 23 this morning. And uh, we're coming to a portion of Scripture that I hope that all of us will find to be of great comfort and encouragement. And I honestly believe it's, it's a subject that everyone seems to deal with at some point in their lives as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And as a matter of fact, uh, some of you may be even going through this uh, right now, and that has to do with the topic of doubt. Because if we're really honest with ourselves, there are times when we're tempted to doubt a lot of different things. We're, we're, we have doubts in our abilities. We have doubts of our health. We have doubts about our relationships and the future that that may hold. We're also tempted to have doubts about God. We're tempted to doubt whether the Bible is true. We're tempted to doubt whether it actually is the Word of God. We're tempted to doubt whether Jesus really rose from the dead, and we're tempted to doubt that Jesus will really come again. And then we're really even tempted a lot of times to doubt whether God really cares for us and whether God really hears our prayers. But this text is really kind of confusing as we uh, look at this account at first glance in light of everything we've already studied. And so I hope to shed a little bit of light on it this morning for us. We're going to read verses 18 through 23 this morning of Luke chapter 7. So if you're there and you're able to stand with me, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. Luke chapter 7. Starting in verse 18, God's word says this, The disciples of John reported to him about all these things. Summoning two of his disciples, John sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the expected one, or do we look for someone else? When the men came to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you to ask, Are you the expected one, or do we look for someone else? At that very time, he cured many people of diseases and afflictions and evil spirits, and he gave sight to many who were blind. And he answered and he said to them, Go and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have the gospel preached to them. Blessed is he who does not take offense at me. Let's pray. Lord, right now we just thank you for your holy word, that it brings us great comfort, that it sustains our lives, that it sanctifies us and is a light to our path. Father, we just pray that you might be honored in this time, that our hearts would just be drawn to you. And if there is anyone here, that is doubting anything about your nature or your character or your goodness or your faithfulness, Lord, that they will cast that aside and they will cling to you. Oh, Lord, we just ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, as I mentioned earlier, when we read this particular portion of scripture, we sort of look at this and we say to ourselves, what in the world happened to John the Baptist? 
Uh, things seemed to be going so well for him in terms of his understanding of who Christ was. Because as we're reading through Luke's gospel, we're left with an understanding that John has an unshakable faith. He's bold, he's forthright, and he's what a lot of us wish we were in sharing of the gospel. And so we're kind of confused when we read this as to where he now stands. Because the last that we've seen any mention of John at all was back in chapter 5 and verse 33, where the Pharisees and the scribes, they come to Jesus and they ask him, why are the disciples of John fasting and the disciples of Jesus are not? And if you recall from several weeks ago, Matthew's account from Matthew chapter 9 also tells us that it was the disciples of John the Baptist that were there asking that same question as well. What they thought of their uh, religiosity and their piety and what that was supposed to look like, it didn't line up with what they were seeing and experiencing with the disciples of Jesus Christ. But when we go back to any sort of reference about John the Baptist himself, we have not seen of him or heard of him since chapter 3, when he reprimanded Herod the Tetrarch for having Herodias as his wife. And we could just call him Remember, creepy Uncle Herod, right? Because that's what he was in relationship to Herodias. He coerced her to divorce his brother Philip and then to marry him. And John the Baptist flat out told him, hey man, it is unlawful for you to have her. And as a result of that, Herod throws John up in prison, which Luke tells us that that was just another one of Herod's multiple transgressions. And the language there is almost in the sense that as if throwing someone like John the Baptist in prison, it was almost like it was of high a crime as having Herodias as his wife. But even though that was the last place we hear of John the Baptist in Luke's gospel, we're now into an account that makes us wonder what in the world went wrong. Because John had seen far more than any of the Old Testament prophets. What others could only prophesy of and and hope for and long for, John actually got to see with his own eyes. He's even the one who got to personally baptize Jesus in the Jordan River and see the heavens open up and, and hear the voice from heaven that said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And we said that this was the infinite happiness and joy and delight of the Father in the pure enjoyment of His Son. But we need to look at some additional testimony from John. I want you to flip over to John chapter 1 with me. John chapter 1, and we're going to start in verse 19. From John chapter 1, verse 19, it says this, This is the testimony of John, when the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? And he confessed and did not deny, but he confessed and said, I am not the Christ. They asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. Then they said to him, Who are you so that we may give an answer to those who have sent us? What do you say about yourself? Verse 23, he says, I am the voice of the one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet says. So stop right there for a second. It seems very clear from this text right here that John knows exactly who he is and what his mission is, right? 
He's not having an identity crisis. He knows he's not the Christ, but he also knows what he's supposed to be doing and who it's for. So continue on in verse 24. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him and said to him, Why then are you baptizing if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them and saying, I baptize in water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. It is he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I am worthy, not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany beyond the Jordan where John was baptizing. Verse 29, the next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he on behalf of whom I said, After me comes a man who is, has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. I did not recognize him, but so that he might be, uh, be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing in water. Verse 32 continues, John testified, saying, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and it remained upon him. I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. So what went wrong? After all, in light of the text we just read from beginning in Luke chapter 7, it seems as if John has done a total 180 in relation to his understanding of who Jesus Christ actually is. Now, it's pretty clear to us in our text this morning that although John remains in prison, it doesn't necessarily mean that he's in complete isolation. So flip back to Luke chapter 7 there with me. He's in what prisoners would call gin pop and not solitary confinement. He's got access to his friends and his disciples because in verse 18 in our text, it tells us that the disciples reported to him about these things. Now, external sources from the Bible, such as the works of Josephus, tell us that John the Baptist is imprisoned at Macheris, which is just east of the Dead Sea, and its ruins are still there today. If you want to go visit where he was imprisoned at, you can go see it. The Bible's not some distant book created by a bunch of men to try to control the world. It's real in its geography and its history. And so if you want to go visit where John the Baptist was, it's there today. It was the summer home of, the Herod, of Herod the Tetrarch, right? It's 80 miles south from Nain where Jesus just raised the widow's son back from the dead. But it's saying that the disciples go to John and they tell him these things. Now, the things that they're telling John is what we just looked at in the last couple weeks since the beginning of chapter 7. There's the dramatic healing of the centurion servant that we saw with Jesus not even personally seeing the guy. And he heals them from John 7 verses 1 through 10. And then there was that funeral that Jesus stopped And he gave the widow from Nain back her son who was dead and now alive in verses 11 through 17. Both are miraculous events in and of themselves. And you would think that the mere speaking of words from Jesus himself would bring uh, about these astonishing miracles that the disciples of John's testimony, that they would have just bolstered their confidence in the arrival of the Messiah. You, You would have thought that John the Baptist, when he's hearing these things, that he would have just said, hallelujah, 
Praise the Lord. Glory to God, right? It, it, that's incredible. Tell me more about Jesus. What else is he doing? But they have the opposite effect on John, don't they? And we see that in our next verse, in verse 19. It says, summoning two of his disciples, John sent them to the Lord saying, are you the expected one or do we look for someone else? And so when we read this, we're like taken aback at this a little bit, aren't we? We, we find this to be a peculiar question, don't we? Uh, we? It seems like that John the Baptist is not really in the prison Macheris uh, from uh, Herod, but he's actually in Doubter's Castle from Pilgrim's Progress that's being run by the giant despair. But we would never expect this to come from John. It's, it's almost like it should have come from the centurion back in verse, or the beginning of chapter 7 rather than from John. But why is this? Why would he ask such a question of Jesus? I think there's four possible reasons, and it could be a combination of or it could be any one of for John's doubt. And there are actually four reasons that I believe that we doubt as well. And we're going to go through them one by one, but they are, number one, his present circumstances. Number two, his wrong conclusions. Number three, his influence of culture. And number four, his lack in the confidence of the Word of God. The first one, it really hits home to us at various times. And that's when we tend to look at our present circumstances. Our present circumstances. And in the case of John the Baptist, things are not looking well for him. Things are pretty bleak. He's in jail, and he's been in jail for a while now. And it's not like Jesus doesn't even know he's there. I mean, if, if he really wanted to, if he could heal this dead man back to life, and he could heal this servant that he didn't even see, surely... He could even loosen the chains that bind John. Or surely he could have sent a dog with some keys in his mouth to him or something and and break him out of there, right? The oppressive Romans, they're still in control and power. The immoral Herod and Herodias are still sinning and living in the lap of luxury. He's looking around and the religious establishment is alive and well and they're still as hypocritical as ever. And so as John is sitting there in prison and obviously getting reports and messages from his disciples, he's looking around at this and he's thinking, did I make a mistake? Is this the wrong guy? Is is this the culmination of my life to be just sitting here rotting in jail? Maybe that's some of you this morning. Maybe some of you are kind of looking around at your life and saying, man, this isn't the, the Christian walk I signed up for. My kids weren't supposed to turn out this way. I was supposed to be happier in my marriage. I was supposed to be further out of debt by now. And my kids aren't supposed to get as sick as they are and as frequently. Or maybe you're a teenager and you're thinking, my parents were supposed to be richer. They were supposed to be able to get me more things that I want. Or they weren't supposed to fight as much as they do. Or, or they were supposed to do more things with me. And then you look at your situation, and to make it all worse, you start to look at your peers who might have more than you, or better parents than you, as, according to your view. And doubt starts creeping into your heart that God actually loves you and cares for you. That's really one of the great dangers of the prosperity gospel as it's come to be known. 
When God doesn't actually grant you all your physical healing or your financial prosperity or the family situation that you've asked for, you're tempted to really doubt whether God is God and if He's really in control. And so things look pretty bleak to you when you look at your present circumstances and you start to doubt. Well, the second reason for doubt in John is a bit more obvious in that John had made wrong conclusions about Jesus. Wrong conclusions. Theologians might have said that his eschatological expectations had not been met. In other words, Jesus' arrival to the world did not meet the what he thought was going to happen with the arrival of the Messiah. Because when we look back at the message of John, he was convinced that final judgment was coming right now with the arrival of the Messiah. Remember back in Luke chapter 3, verse 7, his words were very strong and very confident. And he said, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee the wrath to come? And it's quite a different message that we hear today in most American churches of God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, right? But John expected Jesus to show up on the scene like a cell phone video of a cop gone bad and just starting to take names and knock heads in. He's probably sitting in prison saying, where in the world is this winnowing fork? Where is the axe that is laid at the root? Where is the fires of judgment? Because when he said all these things, there was no indication that he was concerned at all with what people thought of him. And he went into the wilderness armed with the conviction that God's judgment was coming, and it was coming mightily. But when his friends would stop by, they most assuredly would tell him about Jesus and all the teaching and the preaching he was doing and all the miracles he was performing. And so he probably thought to himself, did I like baptize the wrong dude? I mean, that's his California accent coming out. But did I like baptize the wrong Messiah? Is this the wrong guy? Where is the fire of judgment? Where's the overthrowing of the Roman government? When will Israel arise again and be free? But there are times in the Christian life when we experience doubt as well because of our wrong conclusions about Jesus, right? When we place a more aggressive timetable of ours up against His. When we act when we should be waiting for the Lord to act. When we deal with things in the flesh first, rather than committing them to Jesus in the Spirit through prayer. When we try to barter with Jesus, it says, if you do this thing for me, I'm going to commit more of my life to you. I'm going to pledge greater allegiance to you. And when things don't go as planned, and as we hoped and we long for in our Christian walk, it can cause us to doubt because of our wrong conclusions about Jesus. The third possibility into the cause of John's doubt was the influence of culture. The influence of culture. And we've already mentioned this just a few moments ago, but when the Pharisees and the disciples of John come along and asking Jesus, hey, why are we fasting and the disciples of Jesus aren't? Remember that from back in chapter 5. The disciples of John were only doing so because they thought a natural adherence uh, to the godly culture, they thought, was found in the Pharisees. They were just doing what was naturally Uh, they thought was the natural religious hierarchy. And so they tried to maintain that. They tried to maintain a spiritual piety through the practice of fasting. And if you remember, that fasting wasn't a biblical fast. It was a man-made fast instituted by the Pharisees themselves. And so the disciples of John report back to him, 
They very well could have told him these things and said, hey, what we're doing in terms of fasting and what Jesus is doing in terms of fasting is conflicting. And it's quite possible that John saw that and began to doubt as a result of that. And sadly, we try to assimilate a lot of our culture as well. Our culture doesn't really think that we're lost, or that they're lost, rather. They think that they're intellectually strong and smart, and Christianity is just a crutch, right? There's a lot of times we walk around in our own spiritual pride and our self-righteousness, and we depend upon our good deeds rather than what Jesus has done for us, and we begin to think of, uh, to ourselves that our unsaved friends, they, they appear just as moral as we do and righteous as we do, right? Because our culture tells us that in order to be a good person, you've got to do more good deeds than you have bad deeds in your life, and ultimately that will get you to heaven. And so there's Christians who look at that and they think, doubt. They doubt whether Christ is who he is, if he is all that they ever need. The fourth and last possible reason for the cause of John's doubt, and most assuredly a cause for ours, is a lack of confidence in God's word. A lack of confidence in God's word. Most assuredly, there is clear-cut evidence and testimony from the Old Testament that Jesus was indeed the expected one. From being born of a virgin, to his birth in Bethlehem, to Herod's slaughter of the innocent male babies, to being of the line and house of David, to the flight of Joseph and Mary to Egypt. But while he's in prison, there had to be some level of fading and decreasing confidence that these promises had come true. And the longer he sat in that long and enduring confinement, the more true that seemed and real to him. Was he really the Messiah, he probably thought? Did he really fulfill all those prophecies, he thought? These are questions of doubt that probably just plagued his mind as he had time to sit there and think. It's easy for us to experience the same thing. I would say certainly that a majority of Americans only open their Bibles and God's Word on Sunday morning. And I would argue that some of the, by some of the sermons that I've seen on the internet, the only scripture intake that people get is that blurb on this video screen at the opening of the sermon to which the pastor uses as a launch point to talk about his pet topic or a story or about his life. But as the church continues to capitulate and they fall under the pressure of cultural adaptations and making the Bible relevant for modern man, there is a decrease in the confidence that the Bible really is the Word of God. But the Bible is timeless. Why is the Bible so relevant today? If you were asked that question, what would you say to someone? Why is this so relevant today? Your answer? Because it accurately diagnoses the human heart. It tells us that our hearts are corrupt and they're deceitful above all things. And then, it not only tells us that our hearts are corrupt, but it gives us a a remedy for that corruption, which is found only in the person of Jesus Christ. He is the great physician that can heal that heart. And so as John is sitting in that prison, he starts to look around him at his current situation, and he hears these stories of healings rather than judgment, and the raising of dead rather than a separation with fire. He's plagued with doubt, and he sends two of his disciples to go ask Jesus if he is the expected one. And in verse 20, we see them do him do that just that. When the men came to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you to ask, are you the expected one, or do we look for someone else? And we see a reply back to John that is really twofold. 
containing deeds and words. Or you might say he gives them empirical evidence and scriptural evidence. That starts in verse 21. Verse 21 says, At that very time he cured many people of diseases and afflictions and evil spirits, and he gave sight to many who were blind. So instead of trying to change his ministry methods to meet John's expectations or to start raining down the fires of judgment, Jesus gives the disciples of John an awesome display of power and authority right before their very eyes. Diseases were healed, afflictions were removed, evil spirits were cast away, and the blind received sight all in a moment's time. Now, can you imagine being one of the recipients or uh, of all that, or, or just a family member just standing by with your afflicted daughter, or your blind son, and these two disciples run up to Jesus and they ask him uh, this question, and all of a sudden, your daughter is made well, and now your blind son can see? I mean, if you were kind of savvy, you might just run up to the uh, disciples of John and say, hey, ask him another question, will you? Right? I dare you, right? Do it again. I want to see more of this. Because you would just be on this roller coaster of highs and this explosion of joy from the midst of your soul for what Jesus had just done for you, wouldn't you? You wouldn't be able to stop the tears from flowing to see your son healed. You wouldn't be able to contain yourself. The emotion and the gratitude and the overwhelming happiness from your innermost being would just come out uncontrollably. So at that very time, and some translations say, in that very hour, Jesus performs all of these miracles. And all the people there had to be just praising God and just rejoicing and shouting and whooping and just thanking Jesus with tears of joy streaming down their face. It'd be better than any three-point shot at the buzzer or any field goal with two seconds left on the clock. And so, instead of that display of fire, Jesus gives them a display of mercy. Instead of judgment, he gives them a display of grace. And just in case the disciples of John miss the point and it goes over their head, in case they are, were seeing but still doubting with that empirical evidence he gave them, in verse 23, or 22, rather, he gives them some answers with scriptural evidence. Verse 22 says, And he answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have the gospel preached to them. They had probably already heard of Peter's mother-in-law healed back in Luke 4.38. They probably already heard of the evil spirits being cast out in Luke 4.31. They probably heard of the leper being cleansed back in Luke 5.12. And they probably already heard how the man who was lame and was made to walk after his friends lowered him down in the middle of the room on the pallet back in Luke 5.17. And we already know that the disciples of John told him about the centurion servant and the raising of the dead back in the city of Nain. And so Jesus performs this awesome display of power and authority over the physical world and the spiritual world, and he tells them, go back to John and tell them, tell him what you've seen and heard. And if you'll notice in your text, if you have the NASB Bible, you should see uh, the blind receive sight, and also the poor have the preach to them capitalized. So it should be in capital letters. And when you see these words capitalized, it is used to tell us that that is an Old Testament quotation. The first one Jesus tells us, 
to, he tells them to tell John is to remember from Isaiah 35, verses 5 and 6, which says, Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. The second one he quotes is from Isaiah 61.1, which says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. So by telling John's disciple to go back and tell John all that you've seen and heard, Jesus is essentially telling John to not just look at these miracles in and of themselves as the validity of my identity. Even though they are incredible displays of power and incredible displays of authority. But John, I want you to remember the words, the words of Isaiah of what was promised about the Savior and what he was supposed to do. He came to preach the gospel to poor and needy sinners. Don't let what you're seeing and what you're experiencing and all of these miracles distract you or detract you from God's written revelation about the truth of the Messiah. And that's really a great warning for us too. There are so many people out there in churches using smokes and uh, smoke machines and mirrors. And I've even seen a video where a guy's taking off his jacket and people are walking up and he's whacking them, claiming that they are being filled with the Spirit through his coat. And these light shows that people look at and experience with these supposed miracles and they see these as signs, but they, don't, they see them apart from the truth of God's Word. It's the Word that is hidden in your heart that you might not sin against him. It's the word that will be a lamp to your feet. It is the word of God that is sharper than any double-edged sword and is able to divide the thoughts and the intentions of our hearts. But when Jesus gives them a beatitude as a means of encouragement, he's going to also give it to them as a warning for them to take back to John in verse 23 when he says, Blessed is he who does not take offense at me. In other words, what John is saying, or Jesus is saying to John is this. John, you're going to be a blessed man if you don't fall away because of your discouragement and doubt because of the way that I'm working. Don't be disappointed because I'm not meeting your expectations. And again, what he is saying to John is alluded to in Isaiah 8, 14 and 15, which says, Then he shall become a sanctuary, both to the house of Israel, a stone to strike, and a rock to stumble over, and a snare and a trap for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Many will stumble, stumble over them. Then they will fall and be broken. They will even be snared and caught. How many people do you know that stumble over Jesus? You probably know more that do than more who don't. But how many people in this world today can't believe in a Jesus that is only concerned with their soul and concerned about our spiritual salvation? I can remember a friend of mine who told me that his dad used to believe in God. He told me that they used to go to church and they used to take the family to church and they had a house fire one time when uh, the babysitter left something on the stove and it caught the house on fire. And he was sleeping in the other room. And uh, firefighters came, rescued him. And, uh, but my friend, who was like eight or nine at the time, he got severely burned all over his body. How many people, well, at, at that point, he said it was that moment, that moment, 
that my dad stopped going to church. That moment, my dad stopped believing in God. How many people have suffered doubt and discouragement and fallen away because they were disappointed in their expectations of what Jesus would do for them? How many people will face doubt and discouragement and even fall away if the Supreme Court justices don't rule the right way on marriage when it comes? How many people will face doubt when Jesus doesn't meet their economic expectations or doesn't get them the marriage partner that they had hoped for or the healing that they think they should get or the financial relief that they should experience? How many people are dependent upon those things? Don't look at your present circumstances. Don't let the culture influence you about Jesus. Don't lose your confidence in God or of God in his word. Don't draw the wrong conclusions about Jesus just because he doesn't show up with all of the shock and awe that you expect him to do. Elijah experienced this in 1 Kings 19.9. After he was fleeing from the wicked queen Jezebel, verse 9 says, Then he came there to a cave and he lodged there. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away. He was fleeing at the moment. Verse 11, so he said, go forth and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord was passing by, and a great strong wind was rending the mountain and breaking the pieces the rocks of the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of a gentle blowing. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle and he went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, a voice came to him. We can't always look for the shock and awe that Jesus is going to do something spectacular and blow things up and just all this visual things that we keep looking for. It is a wondrous and adulterous generation that looks for for a sign. I love it when churches, they talk about they've had a movement of God or they come experience a movement of God in our church because truth be told, even when we seem to have a hard time perceiving that God is actually moving God is always moving in ways that we don't know and we don't have manifested before us. God never sleeps. He doesn't slumber. He doesn't take a vacation. He never grows weary or tired that he needs to take a break. And even when it may seem to you that things are falling apart and even when your health seems to be failing or kids keep getting sick or your kids are going crazy as soon as they turn 18 years of age and our country's going down the tubes... We must not stumble over Jesus. We must not get the wrong idea about Jesus as John did. John wasn't wrong in pronouncing that judgment is coming through Jesus Christ. He wasn't wrong in saying those things, but he was wrong in his understanding of when those things are going to happen. Because when Jesus returns a second time, he will return on his mighty steed. And his hair will be as white as wool, and his eyes will be like flames. And his feet will be burnished bronze, and his voice will be the sound of many rushing waters. And he will come 
for judgment at that time. So we better not get the wrong idea about Jesus today. Paul tells us in Romans 9.33, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. He is the one. He is the only one who is the way, the truth, and the life, and you will not make it to the Father apart from him. Trust in Jesus Christ. Trust in his promises and don't stumble over him. And then you will have no reason to be ashamed even on the day of judgment. Let's pray. Father, your word tells us that some may trust in horses and some may trust in chariots, but we will trust in the name of the Lord. Whatever comes our way, God, whatever affliction comes to us, whatever trial that we experience, whenever we look at things that are falling apart in our nation, in our families, Lord, help us to always look to you and keep our eyes on the author and the perfecter of our faith. Let us not stumble over Jesus Christ and have expectations that are our expectations and not yours. God, we just want to honor you with our lives. Help us not to doubt. Help us to cling to the truth that is found in your word. Lord, we just pray these things as we go forth from here. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.